invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. We're returning now after three weeks to a series that I began back then, which is Paul sailing now off to Rome. He has appealed to Caesar, as you know, and now to Caesar he will go. It's time to catch the ship that's sailing from Caesarea, make that short trip 70 miles north to Sidon, and from there they'll cross under the lee of the island of Cyprus and scoot along underneath the provinces of Cilicia and Pamphylia and over to Lycia, where there is the capital and a major port there in Myra, the city of Myra. They'll stop there and they'll pick up another ship. They are headed for Italy, obviously, and the currents typically travel west from east to west, and so they're moving right along. But as God would have it in his providence, he's about to make a change. And so they're looking to make it to Canidus, but they're turned south. They're turned south to the island of Crete. They wind up in the city Salmone, which is at the eastern end of Crete, and then they come around underneath the southern side of that island, and they pass Lycia, and just maybe five miles over is a city called Fair Havens. And that's where we left off in our map. And I know this is small on the screen, but I hope you can just sort of see the red line and kind of the trajectory there. You see it wandering. Their intention, I'm sure, was to go from Myra, which is that um, major grain port, the imperial uh, grain fleet is the... Uh, the appointment of the centurion that's on the ship. He is uh, oversees the decisions that are made, not even the owner of the ship or the captain, the helmsman, make those final decisions he does because it's part of the merchant marine group that hauls grain from Alexandria at the tip of Africa, at the northern end of Africa. You can see it on the map there, straight up north to Myra. And so he's catching those ships that are moving from Alexandria going up to Myra and then over to Italy to deliver their grain. So they're loaded with wheat, they're loaded with passengers, they're loaded with prisoners. In all, our text uh, reveals there's 276 on board. But something happens now. Something happens that causes them to end up at Fair Havens with the wind and the weather. And they're there now. We explored all of that last time three weeks ago. If uh, you weren't here, I refer that message to you on Sermon Audio. You can listen to it because we walked through the details of how they made it to Crete and Fair Havens. Paul is warning them it's late in the season now. It's past October 5th, which in 59 AD, which, where this Yom Kippur takes place, has already been passed, the text shared with us. So, the uh, Day of Atonement is already passed, October 5th. They aren't, they're, it's dangerous to sail anywhere from uh, November, from uh, September, October rather, mid-October to mid-November time is considered dangerous. You really shouldn't go unless you have to. And after November 11th, it is forbidden to sh- to travel at all, because the next three months are that brutal on the Mediterranean Sea that they wouldn't make it, wouldn't be expected to make it because of the uh, storms that whip up there during the winter. 
And so we see them now down in Fair Havens, and Paul is recommending that they stay there, that they stay and winter at Fair Havens at that port. And he's saying, I perceive, and this is verse 10 of 27, he's indicating that this is a perception of his, and he's got experience. 2 Corinthians 11.25, he declares some of his experience on the sea. He had been shipwrecked himself three times. He's afloat on the sea a night and a day. He knows from where he speaks. And so he's warning them, it's late in the year. We should simply winter at Fairhaven's. The centurion talks to, of course, the helmsman and the owner of the boat, and they say, let's try to make it to the western end of Crete at Phoenix. Phonica is the city, and there's a port there. He wants to make at least that extra 40 miles if he can. This is an important, uh, this is their commerce. This is how they make money. So they choose not to winter at Fairhaven's. They don't take Paul's advice. And so instead, they try to make it up to uh, Phoenix. And so they don't make it. There is a gentle wind blowing. And from there, it turns them uh, south. So that's of some great concern. So let's, we're going to pick it up on verse 13. I'm going to read through verse uh, 20 or so. We'll see. Picking it up in verse 13 of chapter 27. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, or Clauda, we managed with difficulties to secure the ship's boat. That's the little dinghy they keep on board so that they can uh, exit the ship and just row into land, or if they have any emergencies, they've got these, we would call them lifeboats. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. This is frapping. I mentioned this last time. Each ship back then in the ancient times, ancient mariner times, they would wrap if they got into a rough uh, situation of weather on the seas. It threatened to beat apart the timbers that the ship is made out of. They're made out of plank and then they're sealed They are typically like a tongue and groove. And so wrapping them with cables that are already pre-fitted would tighten up that hull so they could make it into these rough waves that come along. Then then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis. Sirtis is the quicksand. It was considered ship's graveyard. I don't know if you can see it. It's Sirtis Major is where they were being pulled and a lot of Ships uh, were wrecked there. So they're trying desperately to avoid that. So they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They lost all hope. They're expecting to die, to perish at sea, whether it's in the quicksands of the major Sirtis 
or by the storm itself being beaten apart, they didn't see any hope at all. I'm going to pause there so we can pray, and then we'll go forward from there from verse 20. Father, thank you for what we have learned so far, which up to this point has been so far a relatively gentle, easy trip. And now you've set an appointment for the apostle. You've made an appointment for all 276 passengers on board and the ship itself, the cargo, all of it. We're fascinated by this, Lord, when we read this account for its detail and the accuracy of these details. We thank you so much, Lord, and we pray that you would be with us now. There's something more than a story here for us. We understand that. We understand you've assembled us here today for something greater than hearing the further travels of the Apostle Paul. Because the things that happen are difficult for us to reconcile in our minds. Why would you, O Lord, appoint a man and tell him he must go to Rome only at least at this point from our limited human perspective, see him spinning off toward what Eve assumed is going to be certain death. Why do you put us often in situations where we see there is no hope from our perspective? From our perspective, all hope sometimes becomes abandoned. And so we want to pay attention, Lord, because for those of us who know how the story turns out, you do some spectacular things. And so help us now, Lord, that you would be glorified in the things that you reveal to us beyond even this story, throughout the whole of Scripture, as it speaks to these important principles that you would have here for us today. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story is filled with drama, clearly. We've got human struggles, near-death experiences. We've got a ship that's almost blown apart and destroyed. There's divine intervention. The Lord speaks through uh, an angel that he sends to Paul. It's pretty dramatic. We see the cooperative effort of the passengers that, that God uses as means to fulfill his decretive will. It's pretty remarkable. So... It's that surprising that some Christians have looked at this story because it's so detailed that some Christians see this as really an allegory for their lives. They, they see every detail of it as sort of a metaphor for things that have happened in their life and getting to the places that the people on board would get to. Being forced circumstantially into places where you have to make decisions on the spot that you weren't necessarily expecting. So this biblical story has been scrutinized by those that are expert in sailing as well as scholars in ancient maritime history. There's a man named James Smith who wrote a book. He was an expert yachtsman and also a Christian who decided to pick apart this story line by line, detail by detail, and there's a lot of detail here. 
So you have to wonder why God would even give us so much detail. And he went through line by line, detail by detail, comparing that over against a whole host of research that he did in ancient first century maritime uh, seafaring ways, the ways of the weather and the way they would travel and the types of ships, all, all that. It was all taken into consideration. But what strikes you as you read from these people that are either drawing from Smith or other sources is the pinpoint accuracy of this account. So at that point, you realize that this should be part, an important part of our apologetic. Shouldn't it? This, this can't be disproven. Anybody who has studied ancient uh, nautical studies and the way they would sail, how they would sail, what they sailed, the way ships were built, how they, how they sailed those ships in the first century, all of those things, the time it would take and the kind of weather that they would run into, um, it's, it's nothing short of impressive. They, one writer said one of the most instructive documents for the knowledge of ancient seamanship, end quote. It's a man named Holtzman who wrote this. They're all in agreement. I haven't come across any that were in disagreement that, no, this couldn't have happened for this reason. It certainly couldn't have happened. No, actually, every step of the way, as we find out from our archaeologists, every turn of the archaeologist's spade only proves the Bible, the accounts in the Bible, it never disproves it. <clears throat> the same here. So taking it from that standpoint, it's really a remarkable story. Because this is a piece of history in all of its glorious detail that we should be using for our part of our apologetic as well, our defense of the veracity of Scripture, because it's there for us. God's given it to us as a gift. Its accuracy in every detail is just remarkable in this portion of Scripture. Paul is traveling, of course, with Luke and Aristarchus. You remember that from last time. But our focus isn't on these gale force winds or the, or the drama in the story itself, how the ship might be breaking apart, what they're doing about that, what in the world's going to happen next. This would be a great movie, really. It's very, very engaging. It's actually in the sovereignty of God and how that affects the conduct of Paul or how the conduct of Paul proves the sovereignty of God is how we want to think as we're looking through this account that he's given us here today. So verse 20, let's just get started. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us. Folks, this is a hurricane, this tempest. This is a hurricane. Paul is in a hurricane. You have enough experience of seeing those on television. All of our being saved was at last abandoned. Anybody thinking that there was a glimmer of hope they would be saved, is now gone. It's evaporated. Would God ever put his people in a position like that? I'm glad you're being silent, because we all know he does for his great purposes. He gets you to the point where you see no alternative for particular situations, and you don't know what is going to happen. So you have to depend on him. It's kind of his favorite MO, really, to get our attention so that he can do the heart work. 
is to get through some pretty thick skin to do that sometimes. And so all hope is abandoned here. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up and said to them, men, you should have listened to me. Probably not the time to say I told you so, but this is the Apostle Paul. And not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Verse 22, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. Say what? Yeah, that gets their attention, doesn't it? What did you just say? I mean, these people are without... Imagine you're in the middle of this storm. You're wondering if the ship is even going to hold up to make it to the graveyard of ships. Take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. How can he speak so unequivocally here? You know why. Because God himself sent an angel to tell him. Whereas in verse 10, he said, I, I perceive that we need to, this is based upon his experience. And we should remember the difference between those two things. The things that are really our experience and, and, and our uh, valued opinion and those things that, no, we know clearly from the word of God because he's told me so. He's made promises to me that give me hope, that restore me. Back then, when he was in, they were, the church was in this transitional period, he sent an angel. God, in many times, in many diverse ways, spoke to his people in a lot of different ways throughout the whole of Scripture. But now he has finally spoken to us through whom? His Son, Jesus Christ, through the Word of God. So this isn't his opinion now. And you can hear it in the certainty of that verse of that statement. Anybody who can boldly say, take heart, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. You want to qualify that a little bit, Paul? I mean, you can just say that unequivocally? Yes. Before we move on in the text, though, I think it's important at this point. I, last time, three weeks ago, I was noticing that there was another Old Testament story that's much like this where do we find it? Jonah. That's right. The similarities are striking enough, but the responses from the two biblical characters couldn't be more disparate, more, more different. They're 180 degrees different. So I thought I'd write some down just for your consideration, just as quickly. It doesn't have to do with our text, but this is just too interesting, I think. Because the more I thought about it as I'm look, flipping back to Jonah and then coming forward, I'm like, this is interesting. So this is just for, for your edification. So first of all, Jonah sought to flee from the presence of the Lord. That's what the text says in chapter 1, verse 3. He was seeking to flee the presence of the Lord in rebellion, right? A little different from Paul. So how is he going to flee from the Lord? So his account happens in the 8th century B.C. Psalm 139 that was written by King David back in the 10th, 11th century B.C. would have been, he should have been familiar with, wouldn't you think? As God's man, and Psalm 139 says what with regard to escaping God's presence? Whither can I go 
Whither, what can I run from your spirit? If I go up the highest place in heaven, I, you're there. If I go to the deepest part, and I would say David was citing those as an encouragement, wouldn't you? Why? Because he wanted to what? He wanted to be with God. He thought for a time while he was on his rooftop looking at Bathsheba while she took a bath that maybe he was, nobody was around and could see it. No, no, his whole conviction is, it shakes his whole idea of God. I realize I can't go anywhere. Paul knows this. Paul covets the presence of the God that he loves. And I want you to see why this morning from Scripture so that you can be encouraged as well. So Paul lived with a constant awareness of the inescapable presence of God, that he is omnipresent. You can't get away from the presence of God. You wonder what Jonah was thinking. He wanted to escape from, he wanted to flee the presence of the Lord. Already I'm bum-fuzzled. Jonah's ship met with a mighty tempest on the sea. This is verse 4 of chapter 1. So that the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So a lot like Paul's experience, isn't it? Same kind of thing. There's a storm that whips up, and the ship's being tossed and battered. And when the sailors are afraid, well, we probably should be too then. These are seasoned sailors, and they're afraid That's not a good sign for a passenger, a landlubber like us, right? But it's the same as Paul's going through, but the reactions are so strikingly different. Paul remained on deck getting involved, actively involved, offering help, taking leadership, making suggestions, right? Which impressed Julius and the ship's captain. In Jonah's account, chapter 1, verse 5, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Verse 6, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Has mom or dad ever said that to you when you were younger? What do you mean? We would say, What are you doing sleeping? There's a storm. He's hiding. He doesn't care. Arise, call out to your God. He's got to tell him to call to appeal to his God. Paul gets a messenger sent from God through an angel he hears from God himself. Without prompting, Paul voluntarily bore witness to the crew about his relationship to God, didn't he? And what God required for them to be saved, he made that clear. The crew of Jonah's ship, they had to cast lots to try to figure out what was going on, who's responsible, and what they should do. Because Jonah's down in the hold, sleeping. Well, he's probably tired. It was an arduous journey anyway. What with all that fleeing from God's presence? That has to be pretty taxing. 
casting lots. This is verse 7 to 16 of Jonah 1. He leaves them to cry out to their gods instead of him being up. So the difference between Paul and Jonah is so striking, it's worth our thinking through. And I've thought through this. So Paul eventually, well, how do the two men end up? Paul ends up eventually arriving in Rome, doesn't he? What happens to Jonah? Jonah gets tossed overboard and ends up getting swallowed by a big fish and is not so removed until God tells the fish to vomit him out on shore. Why are there two different ways for people that are called by God to live? What's the difference between these two men? Some words came to mind that I find in the Apostle Paul that I long for in my own life. Faith. Mercy. Jonah had no mercy. I want the Ninevites to perish. Humility. Paul had it. Jonah did not. He has the tenacity to look at God and scold God for what he was about to do in Nineveh. He goes after all, but he, he's angry about it. Love. That's the big difference. Paul loves God. He loves Christ. And possession. And we're going to look at that in the text. Galatians 5, 6 says clearly that only faith working for love, through love rather, counts for anything. Unless it, it comes through that grid, unless it comes from a heart so filled with love for Christ, it means nothing to him. In that verse, they use circumcision or not as an example. Those are works, in other words. We could fill in the blanks from experiences that we've either done ourselves or seen in our lives. Verse 23, For this very night there stood before me, said God, or said Paul. Here's the confirmation that God is speaking. An angel of the God. Notice the de definite article. The God to whom I belong. There it is. That is the key. He belongs to him. He doesn't just say I'm a Christian. He doesn't just hang with Christians. He doesn't just darken the door with the church whenever it's open. He belongs to Christ. That struck me. I couldn't leave that. Even though we went through that verse three weeks ago, I had to return to it. Am I seeking the Lord? I'm, I'm praying through Charles prays through the, the songs that the Lord would bring to him for the beginning Sunday. I feel bad for Charles. <laughs> I didn't have much to give him. And I didn't have the guts to tell him, well, we're going to be right back in the same passage again. But I want you to see this. If you don't get this, you're missing a lot. Maybe everything. The God, the God, not your gods, 
Not Jupiter, not Mars, whoever you might cast lots for. The God to whom I belong. And he also says, and whom I worship. We're going to spend the balance of our time looking at this. Psalm 100, verse 3 comes to mind. I want you to note the possession that is clear in the scriptures, but we sometimes overlook when people just go ahead and tell us, yeah, I'm a Christian. Or we say to ourselves, yeah, I'm a Christian. Because I did this or I did that. I did this or I did that. Well, unless it's faith working through love, it counts for nothing. So I want to know, what does this look like? What does the Bible say about this? The God to whom I belong. So Paul's introducing the God to these heathens on board. This God, the God, is both imminent and transcendent. He is both Jehovah Shema, the God who is there, and he is El Elyon, the God Most High. That's him. He's high and removed. Absolutely otherly. And yet, he has a creation that bears his image and likeness that he desires to be with, to be intimate with, to share affection with, to possess. This is more than an aisle walk or a statement or a certain formulaic prayer you pray or it's vastly more. Paul enjoyed the intimacy of a personal possession by the God who created him. He's the God, El Elyon, over all of creation. There is none higher. I am the Lord. There is none like me. No other Savior. No other Redeemer. How do I get to you? How do I get to you? You don't. I reach down and I get you. And you become mine. And I will pour out my love on you. And I will protect you. And I will provide for you. This is the God that allows this fractured, fragmented, busted up little man on this ship to be absolutely calm and serene and confident. You're not going to die. The storm is blowing the ship around. It's banging against the walls. It's splashing up over onto the decks. The creaks, the sounds of it breaking up. And he's encouraging them. It's like Jesus in John's chapters that lead up to the cross. He's encouraging his disciples when he's about to face the most unjust trial, torture, and execution mankind has ever known. He's encouraging them. How does that happen? That's what Paul's doing. He's possessed. He's possessed by one who chose to die for him that he might live 
with him, in him, for him, through him. That's what the gospel does. That's what he does. That's what makes a Jonah so different from a New Testament apostle Paul who has to be struck down on his way to Damascus to persecute the church. He has to be blinded. Some of us have to be beat down pretty good before he gets our attention and says, you're mine. You're mine. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And that price was paid by me, he would say. So what's God's intention with this treasured possession? Those aren't just hallmark words I pulled up. He refers to his people as his treasured possession. Mark that. Underline it. Do a search of it. Be encouraged by it. You're his treasured possession. Nothing that can ever happen to you outside of the pre-planned intention of the God who now possesses you. Listen to Zechariah 13, verse 9. And I will put this third into the fire. Who wants to sign on? (laughs) Oh, so it strikes me. This is why you allow Paul to go through these things with the rest of us going, why would you do that to your servant that says must go to Rome? How is he even going to survive this? But wait a minute, I can't get past the why question. Why are you doing this to him? Why do you do this to me? Why does he do it to you? Well, with one third, I will put them through the fire. Oh, here it is. And refine them. Is there something to refine out of us? Yeah. Yeah. What's it going to take? If you're a thick-headed brute like me, it's going to take a lot. It's going to take a lot. And refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested because he loves you so very much. He's going to refine you. He's going to purify you. Look at 1 John 3, verse 3. With the expectation of the glory of Christ coming back, we ought to be purifying ourselves even as he is pure because that's the business that he is about. Look at 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1 as well. That's the business he's about. He's making a people holy. 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16. What does it say? Be ye what? Why? Because I am holy. Be ye holy. You could also say, because I'm holy. I want you refined. I want you looking like me. Why? Because you are my treasured possession. You are a treasure to me. And I'm reclaiming something that belongs to me. It's my image in you. What's it going to take? Don't ask. Would you have signed up if you knew what God was going to have to do with you to refine you? That's why none of us are allowed to be prophets. We'd probably bail like Jonah. I think I would. Oh, you got to do that? Can't I just be saved and then... (laughs) 
I love you too much to leave you alone in your present condition because it's killing you. Listen to this. I'm still in. I can't get past Zechariah 13.9. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. That's what Paul is saying, isn't it? I want to tell you that none of you will perish. Not one. You will all be saved. Every one of you, not a hair on your head, will perish. And we cannot see him. I think I had that. Yeah, good. I wanted you to have this in your notes. Though we cannot see him while he works, or we do not understand how he works, still, he works in those he loves those who belong to him. In this great truth, we can be certain. In that great truth, we must trust. That's what I see with Paul. Don't you? What else makes a man like that instead of a Jonah? Those are the words. Faith, mercy, humility, love, possession. He could stand against the fiercest storm because he knows who he belongs to. This is, this is his possession. There is no way he's going to lose it. Read, read John 10, 28 and 29. Out of all those that the Father gives me, I'll lose ah, 10, 20%. Couldn't hang on to them. Are we kidding when we doubt? Who are we doubting when we doubt? We're distrusting something he made clear to us in his word. I will lose none of them. They are mine. I bought them. They belong to me. And who wants to go up against him? Anybody in their right mind would say, not me. Yes, and that, that sent me on to Job 23. Listen to this. Job 23, 8 to 10. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, there it is. I'm not going to let you see because you would muck it up. Besides, I want you to trust me. That's synonymous with faith. This is how I build strong faith in you. You won't see me working. You won't see me working. You won't know, you won't, you won't understand how I work. And still I call you to accept that I am at work because I told you I am. He knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. There it is again. Zechariah 13, 
putting a third in the fire to refine them, to test them as gold. Here we see it again with Job. So you get it in the five, six hundreds BC, and you get it in one of the oldest books in the Bible. They're the same. It's the same point being made. The time of Job was the time of the patriarchs. So Job is it lived there. The best thinking is, is that the time of Abraham, for goodness sake. So this is thousands of years beforehand. And it's the same thing. It's the same concept. You are mine. And I will refine you. That's what Paul's going through. You have to understand it under the object of possession. You are not your own. I am not my own. I belong to someone. And so we had read for us this morning from Psalm 139, verse 5 and 6. You hem me in. This is like Job. It's the same thing. Whole different era in biblical history when this is written. But it's the same thing. This is the continuity of Scripture. This is the analogia scriptura. This is scripture answering scripture. This is the amazing thing about God, the manifestation of God throughout not just generations, but millennia. And he says the same thing. And few marvel over that. I marvel at that. That we would not marvel over this. This is spectacular. You hem me in, David wrote, behind and before. He can't get away from it either. What's that? He can't extricate himself from the bit of providence or the circumstances that God intentionally has him stuck in so that he can work on him. And yet we act like we're surprised when that happens to us. No, I can't get out of this. Okay, God's got his lab coat on. And? It's a work in you. Isn't that glorious? You can call it glorious. This this is hard. Yeah. You can't get your way out this time. It's not working. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. So that's not enough, but that's almost like a a term of, of being arrested. He's put his hand on him so that you can't muck it up. You're not going to see me. You're not going to hear me. You're not going to know why. You're not going to understand even if I shared with you what I'm doing. But I'm doing it for my glory and your good. I'm doing it. And I am faithful, even though you're not. Isn't that hopeful? You hand me in behind and before. Lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Boy, if that doesn't resonate with you, in the way that they use the word wonderful, it's filled with wonder. I don't understand it. Well, he says in Isaiah 55, what? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Absolutely otherly and yet imminent and intimate with his possession. Those alone in all creation who bear his image and likeness and he wants it back why because there's more of us out there that are not saved yet and the only way we can get through to them is if we look a little different than they do oh how wrong headed it is 
to think that we should act like them and, and buy into their whole culture so that we can win them. That's hogwash. They need to see something different. I needed to see something different from what I experienced, what I lived in New York City. I needed desperately. That led to death. This is life. I want somebody who looks like they have life. Somebody who looks like Paul on the deck of the Adramidian. Standing there as the waves are crashing and bashing against the walls. And he says, none of you are going to die. In a, in a, next time, we can't get to it today, but next time he's going to say, you're, you're hungry. You've gone 14 days without food. Let's get something to eat. Talk about thinking outside of yourself. Listen to what Spurgeon says, by the way, about this passage from Psalms. We are surrounded by the Lord. That's what the language has. You've hemmed me in. There's no escape. God has set us where we are and beset us wherever we be. That's surrounding. That's what besetting means. He's all around us. Why? Otherwise, we would be like Jonah. I'm out of here. Yeah? We cannot turn back and so escape him. We try sometimes, don't we? Oh, I tried. I tried. And it almost cost me my life. I tried, though. Nobody's going to hem me in. Nobody's going to surround me. Nobody owns me. I'm an American. (laughs) We're something, aren't we? As Obi would say, we're a sight. We cannot go forward and outmarch him, for he is before. He not only holds us, but he besets us. And lest there should, be, uh, should seem any chance of escape, or lest we should imagine that the surrounding presence is yet a distant one, it is added, and laid thine hand upon me. There is no escape. God is very near, he goes on to say. This is the imminency of God, the closeness of God, which he wants and which he will have no matter what it takes. God is very near. We are wholly in his power. From that power, there is no escape. Shall we not alter the figure and say that our heavenly father has folded his arms around us and caressed us with his hand It is even so with those who are by faith the children of the Most High, end quote. He bears you up and he sets you down. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still water. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. My rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou hast prepared a table in my presence before mine enemies. Anointed my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house forever. Job said, that same chapter 23, picking up where we left off in 11 and 14, my foot, he's still trying to figure this out. Well, poor Job, he's spending many, many chapters trying to figure it out, right? My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than the, my portion of food. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his, hand, in his mind. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own what? Possession. Possession. This isn't a religion, folks. We say it, but we've lost sight of what that, the, the, the richness of it, the importance of the richness of it. It's not a religion, it's a what? What did you say first hour, brother? He's a, he's a, that truth is a person. That's right. He's a person. That Savior is a person. He's alive. He gave me life. He gave me purpose. He gave me meaning. This is possession. Sometimes my wife thinks I'm possessed. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul can't wait to be used. You say I'm going to Rome? All right. How's this going to work out? No, no. remember? You don't see him working, but he's working. You don't understand how he works, but he's working. You are to trust him. And that's what Paul had. That's the key. It's called faith. He had faith. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.19 to 20 that I've been mentioning. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your response to these things that he has you trapped in. Respond well. Live well. You belong to someone else. You're not your own. He... I am his and he is mine. Paul knew that he would never have given himself to God if God had not given himself for Paul. Can we, can we just embrace that? Is there enough humility in us to embrace that? I would never have given myself to God if God had not willingly given himself up for me. We love only because what, First John? That's it. 
and gave himself up for us. The way our Creator, who is Spirit, gains possession of his physical-slash-spiritual creatures is by love. That's how. Not by religion. Not by your law-keeping. That's a stench to him. It gets in the way of him. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. It is a gift of God. Not any of your works. Some of us get saved and the more we learn, the more law-keeping we become. Thanks for saving me, God. I'll get it from here. We love because he first loved us, 1 John 4.19. God poured his love into our hearts at conversion, making it possible for us to love God and love other people. Right? That's Romans 5.5. He poured his love into our hearts when we made peace with God through the Savior, through the mediator, Jesus Christ, our substitute. One writer put it this way, first, the impartation of the divine to the human, then the surrender of the human to the divine. How much did I have to do with that? It is by grace that you are saved because your God is rich in mercy and great is his love with which he loved you and made you alive in Christ for it is by grace that you are saved and that not of yourselves. Jeremiah 24 verse 7 I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart and their works. Yeah, there's those right now in any room this size, even smaller, that are worried about antinomianism. Ah, there he goes. I feel so sorry for those people. I really do. Because they don't know what grace is. They haven't fully tasted of it yet. Fully appreciated the freedom that there is in simply being handed a gift. I did this for you. If you truly belong to him by possession, as Martin Luther said, and you think you can sin still, continue in sin, sin with impunity, try it. He says, you won't. You can't. You have no taste for it. You'll sin here and there, but your relationship has changed towards sin now. It disgusts me. It breaks my heart because it breaks his. And I go to him and I cry out in confession and repentance. So we still sin, but we don't make a pattern of it. I can tell you what a pattern of sin looks like from my own journal. McLaren said this, Brethren, God does not count that a man belongs to him simply because he made him. If the man does not feel his dependence, his obligation, and, his not, and has not surrendered himself, that person's not saved. They can't go by a statement they made or a prayer they made. 
He in the heavens loves you and me too well, too well to care for a formal and external ownership. He desires hearts. And only they who have yielded themselves to God, moved thereto by the mercies of God, only they belong to him in the estimate of the heavens. And if you and I are his, then that involves that we have deposed from his throne the rebel self, the ancient anarch that disturbs and ruins us, end quote. This is the God to finish this morning. Paul further says, to whom I worship. This is literally the service of worship. This is not of a slave. This is of a priest. This is a spiritual act of service like Romans 12, 1 and following talks about. It's a spiritual act of service. McLaren went on here. His purpose was to represent how as his whole inward nature bowed to, to in submission to and was under the influence of God to whom he belonged. So his whole outward life was a life of devotion. His serving him there in the ship amidst the storm and the squalor of the terror. His calmness was service. His confidence was service. The cheery words that he was speaking to these people were service. And on his whole life, he believed that this was stamped, that he was devoted to God. So there is the true idea of the Christian life. That in all its aspects, attitudes, and, act, and acts, it is to be a manifestation in visible form of inward devotion to and ownership by God. All our work may be worship. And we may pray without ceasing, though supplications come from our lips, if our hearts are in touch with him and through our daily life we serve and honor him, end quote. The service of a worshiper. This is the life that's to be rendered to God by all Christians. The inward devotion to our God, whom we love, must be given outward expression and service to a sin-darkened world. That's what we're here for. Because it's the only way they can see Christ because they're blind and they're dead inside. And he's the only one who can bring life to them. That's our hope. With these, we'll end with a few questions. Lest we think we get off the hook here this morning. Would these Roman soldiers and seasoned seamen have yielded to Paul's declaration if they didn't first realize that he's different from them? Would they, believe, would they even listen to him? These are seasoned sailors. That there's something demonstrably unique about how Paul is handling all this? His composure while facing certain death in a hurricane? Would they even listen to him if he wasn't different? No. Some Christians under the wrong-headed impression that if we act like pagans, pagans will like them and want to know about their Savior. This is so utterly, tragically, and pathetically wrong. They need to see something different. I need to see something different. 
I had paganism down pat. I don't need to see another one like me. Show them something different. Paul did. This is at least disingenuous, if not altogether hypocrisy. That I would live like them so that they'd want to know about my Christ. What? What kind of foolishness is that? So I wrote a few things down here as we close. What would people think of our profession of faith in Jesus Christ if? Okay. What would people think of our profession of faith in Jesus Christ if, for instance, we shrivel up into abject fear when bad news comes or something unexpected happens? That's what they do. What would people think of our profession of faith in Jesus Christ if we explode in anger or whine and complain over sudden unpleasant circumstances or unwarranted bad treatment from others? You're a Christian? What would people think of our profession of faith in Jesus Christ if we lie, cheat, or steal, or if we're lazy, selfish, or self-indulgent? What would people think about our profession of faith in Jesus Christ, finally, if we're worrisome, fussing, doubting, or dithering over some present circumstances or even the future? Christians have been given good reason. Moreover, they've been given the ability to possess courage, to be decisive, like Paul, to be calm in the midst of a storm, thoughtful, wise, and selfless, caring about other people instead of ourselves in the midst of our life burning down. Our worshipful service rendered to God is because we have surrendered our lives to Him who possesses us. 2 Timothy 1.12 But I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That's Paul. Paul the courageous. Paul the calm. Paul the decisive who could keep a clear head when everything else is falling apart around him. Paul who is absolutely serene internally, at peace. Peace outwardly, he's made his peace with God. Peace internally, who the living spirit, where the living spirit resides. So think about it as we close. Think about it. If possession had not really been in your nomenclature, as part of your language of what you've called Christianity, please don't leave here today without thinking through what the Scripture has to say of what actually happens and how it was actually accomplished. Let him cleanse the things that were in error. If you didn't know him in this way, the way that the Scriptures describe, the way God reveals to us, take care of that now. Take care of that now. And if you suspect even for a moment, that maybe, just maybe, you weren't actually a Christian. Settle it now. But remember, you are giving him nothing less, nothing short than your entire life. But it's good. It's good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for 
your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your goodness, your kindness. Thank you for helping us to become a people who are humble, a people who are a people of faith, a people who trust you, a people who love you, a people who adore you, a people who are grateful for that possession that cost you everything. No greater price than your son to make it possible. So I thank you, Lord, and I pray for those here today who at, after listening to the words that you've given them through the scriptures, that you would honor their prayer to repent, perhaps, of what they thought Christianity was and help them, O Lord, take possession. Take possession of us. Lead us. Give us strength. Give us calm. Give us peace that can only happen one way, through Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, we pray. Amen.